0: Thank you for visiting theopenword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer.
1: Well, let's look at First Thessalonians chapter two tonight. See how we do. Father, thanks for this time. We appreciate the opportunity to open the book the only book that we have, Father, from you. And we thank you that we have such a privilege and uh, such a responsibility as well, Father, because there's so much here that we need to know. Pray that you guide our discussion tonight, and we just thank you for this opportunity of study in Christ's name. Amen. Um, this has been fun for me because this is the first time I've really gone through Thessalonians in detail and I'm finding it a very fascinating book in the extent that it's there's a lot in here of Paul being very, uh, I guess, um, defensive of himself. Um, this and Second Corinthians being the two books, also Galatians, where he has to really defend himself. And evidently, just to get the big picture of what was going on, is that evidently, um, after Paul left Thessalonica... actually actually he was run out of town for the most part. Um, Shortly after that some people came in and they sort of slammed the character of Paul. Now we don't know whether these were some of the Judaizers that just sort of like followed Paul around wherever he went because he always had those. Um, Or whether this was actually uh, some people that were within there that didn't like Paul, where the Jews Remember, they were being persecuted by the Jews and the Gentiles there, whether it was them. We don't know who it was. But evidently, they tried to characterize Paul as one of these traveling um, sophists of the day. Basically, what you had back then is people that would go from town to town with their own little theology or own little spin on philosophy or whatever, the wandering philosophers. And, of course, this is Greece. So, you know, what do you have in Greece? Do you got Everyone, Everybody and their brother is a philosopher in Greece. So you have these guys and they go from town to town and they give their spin of theology or whatever, their, their philosophy, and that's how they made their living. They would go and speak and take collections and stay there a while and get a following and go to the next town and the next. And they said, well, that's all Paul is. He's just one of these, just another one of these guys. He's just out for his own uh, ego trip. He's out for his own good. He just wants to take your money. He wants to take advantage of you. And Paul has to remind them that that is not at all the character that he has. In fact, everything he suffered and everything he went through speaks against that. Um, specifically, for example, he reminds them he was shamefully treated because of his message of Philippi. It's like, uh, if I wanted to preach a popular message, it's, this isn't the one to preach. If I was in it for my own benefit, I'm certainly not going to go from town to town getting thrown into jail and beaten for my... Beliefs. I mean, that's not that doesn't make any sense. Um, he was bold to speak in spite of opposition. Um, he exhorted not in deceit, uncleanness or guile, it says. He saw the gospel as a divine trust. This is very important. We see this in Timothy. Paul says, this is the most precious thing I hold and if I don't deliver this right, I'm in deep, deep, deep trouble. He saw this as a very serious calling. He said, I didn't come to please men, but God. He says, uh, my conscience is clear. He didn't use flattering words. In other words, he didn't try to sweet talk them to get a response. Mm-hmm. He did not exhibit covetousness, but called God to be his witness. He said, I didn't covet any of your money. I didn't ask for any, uh, anything from you. He did not seek glory or human accolades. He did not abuse his authority. He didn't come in very abusively and very heavy handedly. But rather, he says, I'm like a nursing mother j- nursing her children. He had a great love so much he would die for these people. His great desire was to impart the gospel. And here's the thing, he did not only work for, to provide for his own needs, but for the needs of anybody that he ministered with him. I mean, there was a whole group of these people that uh, uh, were there in order to, I mean, with him, like for example, we know of two of them. Who were the two that were with him? Silas and Timothy were with him. So he said, I, I worked to not only to feed myself, but the guys that were with me. I mean, this is not the character of one who's coming in to take money from you people. He said, I lived holy, justly, and blamelessly in your presence. There's nothing that I did publicly that would cause shame to, on Christ. And he said, I exhorted you like a father it would exhort his children. And what we see here, and what I think we, I'd like us to think through as we look through this, is the character of one who is a true shepherd. What is a true shepherd like? You know, a true spiritual leader, what are they like? What's their character? And what we see here is a contrast between what Paul is saying his character is and what the character of a false teacher would be. It would be the opposite. Verse 1 he says, For you yourselves, no brethren, that are coming to you was not in vain. He says, don't you remember? The idea of coming there in vain means when I came, my message did not do nothing. Um, It it, it had an effect on these people. It changed their lives. It brought them from death to life. Uh, When he preached there, his preaching was with power. He says it wasn't like just another message that you yawn after um, when you hear it. Rather, it produced life in you. And he says... uh, Here's the first characteristic, but even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak the gospel of God to you in much conflict. So I think if you, if you want to think about what's the number one character of a, of a true preacher, a true messenger of God, someone who is a true spiritual leader. From that, what would you get? One of the great characteristics. Well, He had a concern for others, but he says, I preached the gospel, I suffered, and were spitefully treated, and I preached it to you, even though I had conflict. What would you say that great one of those great characteristics is.
0: Of, of his? Yeah. in the son.
1: And implied in that is that he did not alter his message for his own comfort. He didn't compromise. That's it. No compromise. And, and, and the idea there is that when I came to you and I preached the gospel, I did not change it in order for things to go better for me. See, and th- and that's key because he says, "Look, I got thrown out. Of, you know what happened in Philippi to the guy. Remember? Right. He got beaten. He got thrown into prison. He got he got in the stockade, and he was fight spitefully. And, and the thing he's trying to say is, if I was a wandering philosopher and I just got thrown in jail in the last town and beat up, what am I going to do between that town and your town? What am I going to change?" Amen. If you were a wandering philosopher, what would you do? You'd change it, right?
0: Oh,
1: yeah. Yeah. You're not stupid. I mean, if I got beat up in one time, I'm not going to beat up in the next. I'll change my message. Paul says there's no compromise. Now, as, as you look at the church today, what do you see? And I say church, I mean the church in the broadest general terms. I mean,
0: do happening?
1: you see this? Do you see this? you see compromise? You see, compromise. Who wants to stand up and tell someone they're a sinner on their way to hell? That's non-politically correct, right? If you
0: don't want to hear, there's
1: a sinner. I was just reading a message by a guy who's a missionary over in Nepal. He talked about being invited to preach at this particular place. And he, and he gave them the gospel, the simple gospel, starting in Romans. Man is a sinner, you know, etc. And afterwards, he almost got run out by the leadership that had asked him to speak. Because he used negative notions of sin and condemnation and judgment. You've got to be positive. We don't want to freak these people out. Now, what that tells me is here, 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 here's the pressure. The pressure is for us today to compromise. I can't even spell comp- I can't talk and spell and write at the same time. Compromise. Don't, don't tell them the truth. Tell them what makes it feel good. Um, Robert Schuller did this. And that's why he's got such a big church. He went out and he took a poll of the community. What do you want? You know, if you went to church, what do you want to hear? And he heard what people want. What do they want? Well, they don't want to be beat on. They don't want to be told about their sinners. They don't want to be told any of that stuff. They want to be told, hey, all is well. Hey, how you doing? All is well. There's no problem. Have at it. Um, they don't want to be confronted with the truth. And so there's compromise. And Paul says, I didn't compromise the gospel. In fact, he said, even after I was thrown out of Philippi, I didn't compromise the gospel. But what was he? He says, we were bold to speak the gospel of God in much conflict. Even though we were facing tremendous conflict and tribulation, even while we were speaking, we didn't change the message. And uh, I think we need to think about that today. Look around, see who changes their message to go with the times and uh, those people are not in the, at least in the line or succession of a Paul here. Here's a I just had some questions to ask about a, about a preacher about a spiritual leader supposedly in the church how do you identify a false teacher or false prophet or false leader they're easy to do just ask yourself some questions. Number one, is there emphasis on material or worldly gain and pleasures? I look at the TBN, Trinity Broadcasting Network, and most of those people on there. What what's the what's the emphasis? Give to get. Give. give to get. Give me a hundred dollars, God will give you a thousand. Blat. Well, you know, maybe why don't you give me the hundred and God will give you the thousand. Um, their emphasis is on worldly pleasures? Is there a ca- style characterized by covetousness? Why is it that they want this money? For their own worldly pleasures and pursuits. See how they spend it. Here's a question. Are they or have they suffered persecution because of their message? Not too much. Have they paid a price if they got thrown off of radio stations because they proclaimed the truth? No. Do they use flattering words that make people like them? Absolutely. Do they preach a popular message that makes people feel good? Absolutely. Are they always asking for money or favors? Oh, what's that? What's that? In her uh, What Bart's dad? Whatever it is. Is there a ministry characterized by a love for others to the point of self-sacrifice? No. You're always sacrificing for them. They're not sacrificing for you. In fact, I think it was Frederick K.C. Price, one of these guys, um, his congregation gave him a Rolls-Royce and he made him take it back because it was the wrong color. <laughs> I'm serious. I think it was him. I'm pretty sure it was him. Royce. A Rolls-Royce. How'd you like? What would you do if your congregation gave you a Rolls-Royce? You know, is their ministry centered around pleasing God or men? Are they trying to make happy? No, they're trying to make men happy, particularly themselves. Do they exhibit humility or do they seek the praise of men? Is their life characterized by integrity and godly attitudes and actions? Do they live simply or do they live a luxurious lifestyle? I mean, it doesn't mean that you're know, not allowed to have a new car, you're not allowed to have new houses. Just, I mean, there, there's a limit to that, you know, Rolls Royces and stuff like that. Gold faucets. Gold faucets, gold, what, air-conditioned dog houses. I... I, I oh, okay. What's the one... Oh, Larry Lee, that was it. They had, a, they, on one of his shows, they had him going through his house that just burned down. You know, he's all up, and his house burned down. And he had millions of dollars come in to replace his house. But what he didn't tell the people is that was not his real house. That was his vacation home that burned down.
0: Mm.
1: He didn't tell them that.
0: The question is, Ellen, I mean, yeah, you blame these guys, and so do I. But, I mean, who are the fools that keep sending their money?
1: That's the point. The point is it's up to us to look at these leaders and say, what kind of men are they?
0: Did you ever see the movie uh, Leap of Faith? Mm-mm. you got to go see it. Oh,
1: yeah. oh yeah. I couldn't bring myself to do that.
0: It, it's, 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 it's so true. And it's so typical about what he's about, faith. It's,
1: see uh, see see the problem the problem with these guys is that like like what's it said in Second Peter chapter two, the way of truth is evil spoken of. Oh yeah. Um yeah, you, you go along and say, you know, I'm I'm yeah. a I'm a pastor. Oh, you're one of those guys like Swagert. Or you're one of those guys like, you know, whatever it is on TV, or Ernest Ainsley, or Bob Tilton, or these other guys. You're one of them, huh? Uh, the way of truth is evil spoken of because of them. Is their focus on spiritual material, their hearers, or physical wealth? Well, that, that's a no-brainer. Are they constantly making demands of loyalty or obedience to them from the flock? Yeah, false teacher will not want to be, want to be questioned. See, the thing is, truth will always say, test me, try me, make sure that what I'm saying is right. Error says, don't condemn me. Let's be tolerant. So whenever you see somebody preaching toleration, and uh, uh, let's get along together, and let's give each other a big group hug, that's somebody who's not teaching the truth, most likely. They're, they're teaching error. And Paul is saying here, he says, you know, my, the first character, No compromise. And then he says, For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. All right? And what he's talking about there, not only was there no compromise, but there was a purity of motive here. Purity of motive. And this is another question to ask. He said, When I came to you, I didn't come to teach this or to preach this message from error. What's error? Well, error, wrong. He says, this isn't something that is, that is wrong. Rather, it is the truth of the gospel. And then uncleanness, the word behind uncleanness most often refers to moral uncleanness. Moral uncleanness. He said, I didn't come to preach this to get a following in order to engage in immorality. And that is exactly what a lot of them did. It's interesting, you look at uh, the David Koresh's of the world. Look at these guys. What are they in it for? Personal gain, personal gain sexual pleasure, the whole nine yards. Um, they, they redefine all of the terms, but it's the same thing. It reminds you of what it says in Second Peter 2. Their eyes are full of adultery and they can't stop sinning because they can't control the flesh. Paul says, I wasn't one of those. I didn't come in uncleanness and I didn't come in deceit. The idea of deceit there, dolos, <coughs> refers to baiting a hook, to dangling some bait out. He didn't, I didn't come to lure you in and ensnare and, and you in a system. That was not my motive to do. I wasn't out to deceive you. Rather, my motives were pure. Now, the motives of false teachers are always along these lines. Number one, a false teacher will teach, the error. Now, how do you know what error is? Well, you compare what they say with the Word of God. and When there's a mismatch, somebody's wrong and you can guess which one. It's not the Word of God. Um, Secondly, usually, they have uncleanness. And just give them time. Just give them time. They may look clean on the outside for a while, but give them time. Give them time. And then it says here, nor was it in deceit. They're out to just gain a following. And once they've got you, they reel you in and make you their slave. Paul says, my... Teaching my message was not in uncleanness; rather, it was impurity. I was not out to take anything from you. Then he says, "But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, entrusted with the gospel." The the next characteristic of a true preacher, true prophet, is that he sees the God. He sees um, the value of the gospel. And the idea there is that he is—he sees this as a divine trust. This is not my message, guys. This is not—I didn't—I didn't, stay, I didn't stay, lay awake at night and dream this thing up. I got this from God, and the idea of it being a divine trust means what? I'm accountable to God for my message. Think about that next time you preach a sermon. John MacArthur was asked by somebody, says, "For whom do you prepare your sermons?" He says, God. I mean, he, you know, the point is you want to be approved by God, not men. The problem is once you start being approved by men, most likely you're not being approved by God. Most likely. It's true. And he says, I, this, is, this is divine trust. He said, this was entrusted to me. Um, in First Timothy, he talks about the message of the gospel being a divine trust. We talked about that last week. And the word there is to make a deposit in a bank. God made a deposit into my life of the truth. And someday I'm going to give an account of the way I handled and the way I managed that truth and the way I communicated that truth. And if I don't do it right, I'm in trouble. So he sees his divine trust and then he says, Even so we speak not pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. The next character of a man, of a true prophet, is that he's out to please God, not men. Um, and this is this is, to me. I know I could probably step on some feet here, but this this is why I, I'm very nervous, very nervous about the Hibelian approach to ministry, Bill Hybels, where you you don't want to be offensive. You know, you always. I'm not saying he's crossed that line, but but the problem is when, when you start worrying about making men happy. You've got a problem here. Now, now, by the way, it doesn't mean you're obnoxious. I mean, the other flip side of that is that you're obnoxious. Yeah. You know?
0: Not, not to play the devil's advocate. But I, we grew up in a church where the main message, which was preached nine out of ten times, was always the wrath of hell. Mm-hmm. And every time somebody got up at the open, the main message that it was was, You people are evil, you people are sinners, and da da da, went on and on and on and on and on. Now, I, mean, I don't think that that's a godly
1: preaching either. I would agree. You know, where every, everybody is just evil and evil, and there was, you know, I mean, I can recall very few messages during the time that we grew up in a very legalistic church where it was actually an encouraging message. You got ten people in your church, and you're telling them they're all damned and on their way to hell when all of them are Christians. Yeah. I mean, think about it.
0: Yeah.
1: I mean, there's a place for I think the wrath of God. I, I like the way Paul says it. He says, "I've not, I've not uh, um, failed to declare unto you the whole counsel of God." Um, is there a place of wrath? Yeah, there's a place of truth, love, grace, the whole thing. That's that's why I really like. You know, book teaching, you know, going through a book because it keeps you from falling into that trap, you know, where you're always on your high horse every Sunday on the same thing. Um, It keeps you balanced. But you're you're right, it can go both ways. It can go both ways. I I don't think Paul was obnoxious. I don't think Christ was obnoxious. But their message was not a favorable message. And I, I think the way I, I would look at it is make sure that when people are offended, they're not offended at you, they're offended at your message. All
0: right. yeah. I, I think in the message, there's still got to be love. You know, I do how hard the message is. You preach the gospel, you preach the truth, but it's still got to be love how you say it.
1: Christ wept over, over Christ Jerusalem.
0: They wept about their sin, but He still loved them. He's yeah. shown them how he. You know, he was much charged from the church of the day. Yeah. He was on the non
1: christian The organized religion of the day, he roasted them he alive, alive you, know. you know. And that's hard to, you know, the, the thing, I, and I think the way you, you keep this balance is that, first of all, you got to be conscious it's easy to become unbalanced. And you also need to be very careful that you don't fall into one particular rut. The whole of them die. Because there are other preachers, all they want to do is preach on love. You know, love, God loves, loves, love, love, love. You know, I think it's a mixture. You know, I love the story. Vance Havner. You ever hear Vance Havner? I love that guy. He he's dead now, but boy, he could preach. He talked about uh, talked about this one church where the pastor um, was a hellfire and brimstone preacher all the time, and you know, he just. He'd be pretty, pretty pointed. And the deacons came to him and said, Pastor, you know, really, we're tired of this hellfire and brimstone. We'd like you to do something positive. Why don't you preach on love a while? So he said, uh, Okay, you know. So the first Sunday comes back and the message on Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Um, the next message was, Love your neighbors yourself. And he used, uh, you know, the Good Samaritan. Next week he said, uh, He preached on, Husbands, Love Your Wives. And just really roasted the guys alive. And afterwards, the board came up and said, Preacher, we just as soon as you go back and preach on hell.
0: <laughs>
1: um, it's easy to become unbalanced. Paul, Paul says, you know, I just love the verse in, in, in Acts 20. I've not shunned to declare unto you the whole counsel of God. I didn't pick out the pieces that I liked about the message. I declared the whole message. Um, And that's why I like exegetical. You start at verse 1 and work your way to the end, preaching. Because you don't fall into these ruts of always preaching on one topic. Um, Paul, I don't think, was obnoxious. But the message was an offensive message. And we need to understand the gospel is going to become more and more offensive because our society, the the very backbone of our society, is that we're not to make anybody... Um, we're not to characterize anybody as bad. Is, is Clinton, was he evil? Nah, he wasn't evil. And most Americans would agree, so what? You know, most Americans, and, and he's, you know the Christians freak out and say, oh, that's horrible. Well, that's the way the world is. What do you expect? What do you expect? Um, but it's not to be so with us. We need to be very careful that when we preach, we're not out to make men happy. And uh, if you're preaching a sermon, beware when somebody comes and says, "Boy, that was a good sermon." I say, "I enjoyed that." If they enjoy your sermons every week, you're not you're not getting across the message. All right? You're not getting the message across. Yeah. Um, and Paul was very conscious of that. I'm not out to make men happy. I'm out to make God happy. He's the one I have to stand in front of. And give an account to. Um, I like the message of one pastor was saying he was in high school, and he was no, was in college playing football, and uh, it was one of his first games, and he he had to tackle this guy, and this guy was like four times his size, or at least it seemed, and uh, instead of tackling him, he sort of like bounced off and went down. The guy sacked the quarterback for a big loss and everything, but they went out and won the game and all that. But they went (coughs) in Monday and they went to the film room. And, uh, you know, since it was first play of the game, he didn't think anything of it well. Guess what they ran for the first thing? The cam was right on him. And the coach said, stop, back it up. And they watched this thing three or four times. He said, guys, look at him. And uh, this guy says he learned a very valuable lesson. When you're on a team, you want to make one person happy, the coach. Don't worry about the fans. Don't worry about your girlfriend in the bleachers. Worry about making coach happy. And I think that's the point here. Worry about making God happy. Worry about making God happy. Um, And then he says here, verse 5, For neither at any time did we use flattering words. Alright? No sweet talk. You know what sweet talk is. No sweet talk. Um, you, you, it's so bad, this this thing here is so bad that I, I get physically ill when I see TBN in some of these shows, you know. I can't, well, I can't handle, I can't watch it, you know, they butter you up, you know, all you wonderful people and all this kind of stuff. I mean, all they're out for is your money, you know that, and people send it in. Paul says, I didn't come and I didn't flatter you, I did not build you up. And the point of flattering is you're, you're lying to somebody about them to make them feel good. Now, I, I hate to say this, but you know, let's take a Bob Schuler. Is he a flatterer? Absolutely, because what's his message? You need self-esteem. Your problem is low self-esteem. Quit seeing yourself as this ugly sinner because you're not. You're a wonderful person. And what do people like? They love hearing that. They love it so much that they go to his church and send millions of dollars in to support his ministry, which is really no ministry at all. And he says, I didn't use flattering words. I didn't come and sweet talk you people. I didn't come and make you feel good. I didn't come to take advantage of you. Rather, I came and I told you the truth. And then, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness. God is witness. The idea there is I didn't come and sweet talk you while at the same time having a covetous heart underneath it. No covetousness. And why is that important in a man of God? Why is it important that you not be a coveter? Dirties up
0: your witness or
1: testimony. Jurges up your witness or testimony. What else does it do? If you're covetousness, what are you going to do? You're going to be very careful not to get people ticked. Yeah, right. Because if you do, what's going to happen to the offerings? So That's
0: what happened, huh?
1: That's your problem, Willie. You better <coughs> um,
0: <laughs>
1: that's your problem. Covetous. Covetous. Um, the love of money is a snare. It's a trap. It's a trap. It's interesting. Um, One of the the fascinating passages that that I like going to when I I think about this, it it doesn't really relate to this, but it's there. It's back in Exodus chapter 19, 18 I think it is. Um, Yeah, 18, here's... Yeah. Exodus 18, uh, Moses has a problem. He's wearing himself out because he's judging the people of Israel. So Jethro, his father-in-law, shows up, observes him for a time, say, you know, boy, you're dumb. What you need is you need to get some help here because you're killing yourself. And you need to find some judges, some people to help you. And he says here, verse 19, Listen now to my voice. I'll give you counsel, and God be with you. I'm going to give you counsel, but you you work it out with God, stand before God, stand before God for the people that you may bring the difficulties to God, and you will teach them the statutes and the laws, show them the way in which they must walk and the work they must do. You, Moses, you stand up, and you pray for your people, and you teach them the word, and you do that, but you shall select from all the people able men. But you got to make sure you get the right kind of guy to help you lead the people. They need to fear your God, they need to love the truth, they need to hate righteousness, or covetousness, and then he place such over them to be rulers of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens, and let them judge the people. Now, if it's a great matter, they can bring it to you, but all the rest of the stuff they can take care of. Now, why is, I, I, it was fascinating, because I, I really drew a connection here between what he says here and the character of a leader in 1 Timothy 3, which we'll study possibly tonight. And that is, why did you put the hating covetousness? Well, think about it. Do you want a covetous judge in a judge's seat? You can buy him, right? You can bribe him. You can buy him off. And the point is, is that when you put somebody into authority, whether it's civil authority, as it was here in Exodus, or whether it's spiritual authority, and they're coveteders, they are going to compromise the truth. They're not going to tell you what needs to be said. Because they're going to want to make sure the offerings don't go down. And, and, and you see that. I mean, look at these shows where, what's her, what's her face? She's crying with mascara going down her face and all of this stuff by the devil trying to put them off the air. You know, and all of this stuff. What are they pandering to? Covetousness. Covetousness. And then here's another one. Nor did we see glory from men, either from you or from others. We didn't. We we didn't see glory. What's the idea of glory there? Well, I. We didn't. We didn't. We didn't come in order for you to think we're great, wonderful people. Great, wonderful people. Watch it when men name massive, multi-million-dollar ministries after themselves. Glory of men. Look what I did. Look at my ministry. Look at my impact. That's the glory of men. That's really interesting because God says, or Christ says something very interesting. Matthew 6 He says, If you pray to be seen of men, you just got your payment in full. God owes you nothing, you've been paid in full. And uh, what we have today sometimes is a lot of men who want the glory of others.
0: I read a very interesting article like a couple of weeks ago about what is the biggest, finding from a financial point of view, the biggest ministry in America today. Do you know what it is? Focus on the family. Really? They they their revenues like 113 million a year. Wow. But you would never know. But you would never know.
1: There's some that aren't. Yeah. There are some that aren't drawing, drawing glory to the person. Right. And, and this, um, I mean,
0: I, I'm pointing it out as a godly ministry. Yeah. Because there are so many things that they do. I think mean, they do an outstanding job with mm-hmm. the resources that they got and trusted them. But they still maintain a low key, a humble attitude. They're not in it for the. That's people.
1: hard to do. Yeah. And and many don't succeed at that. Sure. Paul says, "I'm not out to seek the glory of men." That's right. It was interesting. I. I remember going across the San Bernardino Mountains one time, you know, you were surfing the radio, because you know, I'm <clears throat> on vacation trying to find a radio, and, and they had this, this Christian station on. And they're giving this award to some guy, and seriously, for 15 minutes, all I heard is how great and wonderful this guy was, literally. So they saying, I wonder who this guy is. Rex Humbard. I almost drove off the mountain, you know. Yeah, and finally it was Rex Humbard, you know, and I'm sitting there thinking, Good night, you know, Mr. God will kill me if I don't get six million dollars or whatever it was, kind of. I'm sitting here, Good night, you know, and what you see there is it's the good old boy society, it's the glory of men. Paul says, I didn't seek the glory of men, I wasn't out for t- to get anything out of this deal. <laughs> He said, I didn't seek it from you and I didn't seek it from others. And then he says here, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. So not only the idea of glory here is not only the notice, but also I think carries the idea, of the support. As a minister of Christ, did Paul have a right to be supported? Absolutely. But what did he do? In that, in their case, he for he went, he for, for went, I don't know the right word, um, that privilege in order to minister to them, so that no one could say he was in it for the money. That no one could say that. He said, I didn't make any demands of you, and, and you got to look and see these guys today. What do they demand of their flock? Some of them make great demands on their flock. You know, you owe me 10% of your money. And also, there's no accountability. That's another thing. That's another way to pick one out. Are they accountable? Are they accountable or do they resist accountability? Some of them do. He says, no, we weren't that. In fact, what were we? Instead of being demanding, verse 7, we were gentle among you just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. Paul picks probably, of all of of human existence, the most nourishing, cherishing picture possible. That of a mother caring for her newborn infant. What, What greater picture can there be of love and care and protection and nurture than that? Paul says, instead of me coming in and saying, you owe me this and I demand this and I demand that, Paul says, I cared for you. In fact, if you want to know just how badly I cared for you, I cared for you as a nursing mother cherishes her children. This is not the character of one who's trying to take advantage of the people. By the way, just just as an aside before I go on, I have in my notes here some quotes for some of these guys. Talk about covetousness, you talk about money. Here's some of their quotes. David Epley is a false prophet. He says this after you wash the poverty from your hands, this is in a, a mailing of, of anointed soap. He said on a bar of soap. Anointed soap. He says, After you wash the poverty from your hands, take out the largest bill or check you have, that $150 or $20 bill, hold it in your clean hands and say, In Jesus' name I dedicate this to God's work and expect a miracle return of money. Of course, where do you send the Money, to Him. That's right. Colored green. Do you have a financial mountain in your life? Start talking to your money. Tell your checkbook to line up with God's Word. If you're talking to your checkbook, you've got deeper problems. Talk to your business. Command customers to come into your business and spend their money there. Talk to the mountain. In fact, one of them said, talk to your wallet. Tell it to be filled with money. This is Norville Hayes saying this. Here's Kenneth Hagin. You can have what you want. You can write your own ticket with God. And the first step in writing your own ticket with God is to say it. Just write your own ticket. You can have anything you want. And God will have to deliver it. Frederick Casey Price. If you got one dollar of faith and ask for a $10,000 item, it ain't going to work. It won't work. Jesus said, according to your faith, not according to God's will for you in his own t- good time, if it is according to his will, if he can work it into his busy schedule, he said, according to your faith, be it unto you. Now, I may want a Rolls Royce and don't have a bicycle faith. Guess what I'm going to get? A bicycle. But guess what he's got? What's he saying there? Well, according to faith, Now, by the way he's twisted the scripture. Right? Right? <coughs> Because everything I have should be bound by God's will for me. What's he say? Don't ask God if it's your will. Just tell Him you want it He'll have to deliver it. God, I want this. These are false teachers. Paul says, I wasn't one of those guys. He says, rather I cherished you like a mother cherished your ch- children... Verse 8, so affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. Paul is saying, I loved you so much, like a nursing mother, a nursing mother, she would give her life for her baby. She would die for that young life. Paul is saying, I would have died for you. Is that the character of a false prophet? No, the false prophets want you to die for them. None of them are going to stand up and give themselves and sacrifice for somebody else. Paul's saying, I not only imparted you the gospel of God, but my own, I would have imparted you my own life. I would have died for you. Verse 9, for you remember, brethren, our labor and toil. Labor and toil, there's an interesting word. Both of them refer to exhaustion, sweat, work, this is not somebody who comes in here and dinks around. This is somebody who works very hard to the point of being tired. Paul says, you know my labor and toil for laboring night and day. What's that? That's somebody who was diligent at their job. They worked hard. By the way, the work day in those days was 12 hours a day, 6 days a week, 72 hours a week. Paul says, I worked hard. I labored night and day for you. That we not might be a burden to any of you. We preach the, the to you the gospel of God. Here's him saying, Paul says, I work night and day so that I would not be a burden to you. I did not take a single thing from you, no money, nothing. Now some might say, well, yeah, you just you're just priming the pumps. See, you you had somebody else supporting you while you did that. No, he says, I supported myself. In fact, you watched me work. See, some of these false teachers ask how hard they work not very hard not very hard Uh, the true preacher is someone who works hard labors hard at this doctrine at preaching at loving his people and it's a self-sacrificial love that knows no bounds Paul said I would die for you my labor and toil night and day because I didn't want to be a burden I didn't want to be heavy to you And he says this, and you are my witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. This is a man of integrity. Paul says, I did not, I I was not doing this in secret. I lived a life of integrity, integrity before all. Integrity before all. The character of a by the way, the character of one of God's leaders in First Timothy, according to First Timothy three, is that you be blameless. Another one is that you have a good repute. You have good reputation in the in the community. Now, the community may not like what you teach and they may not like what you preach, but they're gonna say this is a man of integrity. If he owes a bill, he pays it. He's not out to cheat, he's not out to lie, he's 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 a man of his word. He doesn't say one thing on Sunday and then lives his life some other way during the week. Paul says, you know I wasn't that. His life was an open book to these people. In fact, it was so open that he could tell many of them, don't do as I do, or say, do as I do. You know, we, sometimes we say that today. You now listen folks, I don't want you to do what I do, just do what I say. Paul, Paul did, you know, he would have he got up and said, look, if you're not doing it, to the extent that they can follow you, then shut up and don't tell them anything. Because you want people to follow a man of integrity. Paul says, uh, I live justly and blamelessly and devoutly. There was nothing you could nail to me. No accusation could be made against my character. And you guys know that. It's not a secret as you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children. Here's the flip side of the nurture. And, and a pastor has to be both. That's tough. A pastor has to be one who is gentle and loves his people and nourishes them and carries them along. Paul says also, when you needed it, I gave you a kick in the pants he says when when a time came for me to have to give you a kick in the pants I, I wasn't afraid to give you a kick in the pants and that's what the idea here of comfort, exhort what's exhort mean? exhort means to command to godly living to encourage somebody to do that which is right comfort, what's that carry with it? well there's a Exhort exhortation and there's a comfort part of the ministry. And then he says I charge and that, the idea of charge there is that's not an optional statement. My father did not say to me um, I'd like you to take out the garbage. That's optional of course. You don't have to really do that. Commanded me. Paul says I command you. And what did he command him? He didn't command him for his own personal gain. He didn't command him to give him money. What did he command them? The word of God the gospel, integrity, honesty, holiness, virtue, all of these things were earmarks of Paul's ministry. He said, my life was an open book. You could see it, you could observe it, you saw it, and there should be no question of how I behaved. And what did he encourage them to do? Well, verse 12, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. That you would walk worthy of God. Um, the worthy walk is a very interesting concept that Paul has. He uses it in, for example, in Philippi, or Ephesians 4. And the idea of walking worthy is the, you're a Christian, now live like it, now act like it. Yeah, you're a Christian, act like it. Um, and the idea of walk there. Is a, is a manner of life, the way you live, your, your day-to-day conduct. It's not you're on and off and on and off. Rather, it's a consistent walk in holiness. Paul said, I encourage you, I exhorted you to walk worthy of God. So this is not the character of one who is a false teacher or a false prophet. He's one who wanted them to walk in holiness. And Paul uses that a lot. For example, um, in his writings, he says, we are to walk in faith. Be people of faith. We are to walk in newness of life. you got a new life, now live it. We're not to walk after the flesh. What's that? Well, the flesh is that which draws us to sin. It's that corrupt humanity. Don't walk according to that. We're to walk honestly in the day. That means to be open, an open life of integrity. We're to walk in the spirit. What's that mean? Just day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, I do what is right. That's all that is. I'm to walk in good works. I'm to walk in love. I'm to walk as a child of the light. I'm to walk in wisdom. I'm to walk worthy of the Lord. And I'm not to walk disorderly. I mean, this, 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 this is what Paul was teaching these people. And it says, because of this, verse 13, we also thank God without ceasing because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men but as it is in truth, the word of God which also effectively works in you who believe. What did the gospel produce? It produced a changed life. I don't believe in this baloney about how you can be a Christian and have no difference. got to be a
0: change.
1: There's, there's, a, there's a change somewhere. We're not talking about perfection. We're not talking about complete arrival spiritually. We're talking about an upward trend. There are people today that say, well, I can be a Christian and not live like it. Or, you know, I, I remember I was talking to one lady whose son was walking away from the Lord for 30 years. She said, yeah, but I know he's a Christian because I remember when he went forward. Can feel you know... Now, I, I, admittedly, you know we can't see the heart, so so we can't make those kind of judgments. But the Bible says, if any man be in Christ, you are a new creation. You're not the same old, same old. And Paul says, when you receive this word, you didn't receive it as just another one of these wandering philosophers spouting off some other nonsense. You received it as the word of God. And what does it do? It works effectively in you who believe. In other words, it makes a difference. The Bible, the word makes a difference in the life of the believer. You're not the same. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. You became an imitator. You, went, you did the same thing. Now, what, were the, what was the characteristic of the church in Judea? What was it under? Persecution, suffering. He said you became imitators of them. And see, this is the power of the gospel. You know, one of the great dangers we fall into is to think, you know, if I just give them the gospel, nobody will take it. i got, I got to lower the bar. i got to lower the bar. Paul didn't lower the bar. When you became a Christian in Thessalonica, you knew one thing. Life was going to be hell for you. I mean, you were going to face... Trials, you were going to be made miserable. Satan was going to bring hell to you. By the way, that you know, this is the only hell we'll ever encounter as a believer. This is the closest we get to hell down here. <coughs> For the unbeliever, this is the closest they get to heaven. But uh, he says they knew what it was going to cost them, and it didn't stop them. You can't stop a person from coming to Christ by. Raising the bar back up to what the Bible has it. That's what Christ did. Remember, the rich young ruler comes running. What do I need to do to be saved? What did Christ do? Raise the, raise the bar. Sell it all. He's gone. He's gone. When's the last time somebody came up to you and said, "Look, you know, I, I see you have a Bible. Could you tell me how to get to heaven?" Hmm. Nobody's had that, but Christ gave him the wrong answer. Really, right? But what was Christ getting at? The root of the problem. An unwillingness to forsake all. You don't lower the bar. He says, you suffered the same things as your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans. And these are the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus Christ, their own prophets. They've persecuted us. They do not please God. They're contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved so as to always fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. Paul's saying they have tried to prevent us from sharing the gospel. Now, I I'm not going to get into all that because we're running out of time here. But just look at the way the Jews treated the Christians. They did not want them to preach the gospel. They did everything they could to put up roadblocks, persecution, to prevent Paul from sharing with the Gentiles. Because in the gospel, a whore of all whores, the Gentiles are fellow heirs. Now, if you want to understand the Jewish mindset about a Gentile, read the book of Jonah. Hmm. God said, I'm going to destroy Nineveh. And Joseph said, fine, great, wonderful. I'm going to go watch. That's what he did. That's why he went outside the city. You know why he went outside the city? In chapter 4, he wanted to see the fire fall. That's what he wanted to see. And when it didn't, he was mad because God didn't destroy those Gentiles. Paul says, they persecute us. They do things contrary to God. And they're filling up the measure of their sins. The idea there is their sin is, is... is backing up the wrath of God and backing up the wrath of God. Someday, the dam's going to break and they're just going to be flooded with the wrath of God. And they were. But we, brethren, verse 17, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. He's saying, unlike what I've been told I, I, I am acting like, I want to see you. See, a lot of times what happened in the, those the charlatans in those days, they go in, they preach a message, they take your money or whatever, and then they skip town and you'd never see them again. Paul's saying, I wanted to come back. I couldn't, but I wanted to come back and see you. So I'm not out to take your money, I'm not out to skip town, I want to come back and see you. That's not the character of one who is a false prophet. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. How did he hinder him? We don't know. It may have been that, you know, the surety that Jason was given prevented Paul from coming back into town for a period of time. It may have been that Paul was just unable to get there because of circumstances. We don't know how, but he couldn't come back. And that bothered him because he said, What is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Isn't even you. Aren't you my hope, joy, crown of rejoicing? In the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ is coming for you, are our glory and joy. Um, when I was growing up, I used to hear sermons on the five crowns you get. and It's like the imperial margarine commercial. You know, you do something and ding you get another crown. And we go to heaven and lugging all these crowns on our heads. They're stacked up or whatever. That's not what I think the scripture teaches here. Paul is not, you know, see, well, the crown of rejoicing is the soul winner's crown. <clears throat> you ever hear that? What's the crown here? He he tells you what the crown is. What is the crown? The people are. It's not a gold crown. It's the people. Paul is saying, when I get to heaven, you know what one of my rewards are in heaven? I get to see you there. You're my crown of rejoicing. It's not another piece of gold he's going to put on his head. It's the people that are there. You are my crown of rejoicing. You are that which I glory in. This is not the character of a man who's out to take advantage of people. This is the character of a man who loves these people. The character of a man who longs to see them, who would die for them. And uh, I just encourage you, you know, think through this. You know, as you look at TV, as you look at the preachers and the pastors and the church leaders and all that in the church today, just go down through these characteristics and just say, do they measure up? Now, I mean, nobody's going to be perfect. But where you see men making compromise, where you see their purity of motive and question, where you see them who are trying to please men and not God or they're trying to sweet talk or trying to get money or trying to take advantage... That's not the character of the man of God. And Paul's saying, that's not the way I was. You know what I was. You've observed my life. You should know that. And he calls them back to remember how he acted among them. Well, next week we're going to turn to 1 Thessalonians 3 and see his heart. This is the heart for Paul of Paul has for the church, the care that he has for them. We'll see that next week in chapter 3. Any Questions, comments on this passage. It's really neat to read through it and just start looking at what Paul was saying and compare that to the day. I'd never done that before, and it really really was helpful. Father, thank you for this day and for the opportunity to study this chapter. I pray that we take these truths to heart, Father. We're 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 encouraged, Father, by the fact that this man of God loved you so much. He was willing to die for these people. I pray, Father, we be men of integrity, that our, our ministry would be characterized like this. That people may see Christ in us. And we thank you for this day. In Christ's name, amen.
0: Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.